All right, this morning we go back to the study on law and gospel. I think this is part 22. So, I'm not going to make you review everything. Let's do this this morning. Uh, Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 10. For Sunday school, we're going to do a little law and gospel test. Romans chapter 10. Now, so far, well, we did a lot of things leading up to this. We gave the 25 theses, and then we started working on the 25 theses. Uh, Let's just review them really quick. The first thesis that we've worked on, number one, was the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible. Both of the Old and New Testament are made up of two doctrines. These two doctrines differ fundamentally from each other, and these two doctrines are called law and gospel. Just make sure you know whole Bible made up of law and gospel and that they differ fundamentally from each other. That's the key part you need to remember because that deals with why we've got to keep them uh, distinct. Thesis number two, and is only the orthodox teacher who not only presents the articles of faith in accordance with scripture, but also rightly distinguishes from each other the law and gospel, the 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 episodes or the, and the sermons we did on thesis number two, somewhat depressing, but you can listen to them. I'm not, I don't have time to go back through all of that. And then I believe on Wednesday, we started thesis number three, which reads, rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and theologians in particular. All right. It is the most difficult and highest art of Christians. And that's what we've been, we've been working on that thesis. I'm not going to go back to all the things we've covered. But since it is one of the most difficult things, and the reason I would say it's one of the most difficult things, not just because that book says it, because we have 2,000 years of church history that demonstrates the constant confusing of these two or the merging of these two, where one is destroyed and the other one sometimes is still there, but sometimes it doesn't look the way it's supposed to. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 10, so, since that's the part of Romans we've been in, and we took a long break from Romans, but in a roundabout way, the long gospel series is very much connected to our series in Romans. Since we stopped in chapter 10, we're going to just through, through Sunday school, it may take us the whole hour, we're going to go through the 21 verses in Romans 10. And your job as we go through these is to determine if it is law or gospel. Sound fun? Okay, hopefully, all right. Hopefully we can do well at this. And remember, uh, and at least in, say, the Lutheran denomination, uh, this is what children have to learn to do for their confirmation. So this is something that everyone should, can clearly, we can figure out how to do it. Sometimes the verse is clear, Correct. Sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes, I think we can be honest, it may not properly fit really into law or gospel. So let me ask you, so let me ask you a question. If the verse doesn't necessarily clearly fit into the category of whether it's law or gospel, what sometimes determines which category it goes into? If, the, if you look at the verse and it's not clear, it's not clear law, it's not clear gospel, it seems in between, what then determines which category it goes into? What do you think? What then determines the category it finds itself in? Okay, someone said context. That's good. That's always a good answer. A lot of times what determines the, the, the way the 
the, con, the category the verse ends up in is how we, the reader or the preacher, uses it. Because preachers almost inevitably, what do you think preachers' natural bent is when they come to a verse? What do they typically use it for? What do you think? Typically, what do you think a, pre- a preacher uses uh, passages of Scripture for? Law or gospel? Law. 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 Constantly, 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 constantly. Because I don't care what you preach, the preacher is going to say what? You should be doing this. Why are you not doing this? You should be trying to do this. Here are three steps to do it better. You should do this. You should do this. Because that's almost the way people want their sermons designed. And most sermons, right? You get usually three points. And what are those three points almost designed to do? Give you something to do. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. That Whenever that happens, what kind of sermon are you getting? A law-based sermon, right? That's just the way it works. That's the way, because people want those practical points, okay? Uh, in fact, if you're not doing that, it almost feels like you're not really preaching. Because in some cases, what determines the success of a sermon in the mind of the preacher and in the mind of the people present? Depending on the kind of church, it's the number of people who do what? Come forward to the altar, well, you're not going to get people coming to the altar every week to get saved. So then what do you have to do to make sure people are coming in? You've got to give them a reason to feel bad and to feel guilty so they will come forward to confess or repent what they've done wrong. It, it becomes a game of just constantly placing people under law so you get the results so that, I can, that the preacher can drive home going, Whew, that was a good sermon. Wow, that was a good service. I did a good job. In reality, you just keep giving them law, 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 in many cases, by destroying the gospel. So, just keep that in mind, because I think we're going to see this in Romans 10 a couple of times. All right, we have verse 1. Everybody ready? Paul, writing to those, the believers in Rome, what does he say? Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. If I read it in a different translation... It says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now simply, Paul is simply expressing what? His desire. His desire. You can't necessarily say that's law. You can't necessarily say that's gospel. He's just expressing a fact. But what do pastors come along and do with this verse almost inevitably? Do you have the same desire Paul had in order to see people saved? So immediately we'll preach it in a law-based way, right? And then talk about this is, this, why don't we have this desire? Because we're cold-hearted and we don't love people enough and we don't care if people are going to burn in hell. And then they tell some sad story that they, 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 they worked with someone and they didn't care enough about them to tell them about the gospel and they died and went to hell. You'll get those kind of, I mean, these kinds of things happen. And so they immediately will place it in the law category. I'm not saying it's wrong to challenge us on that. I just, you have to be able to identify that it's law. That's the key. I'm not saying... I'm not seeing, because uh, I think sometimes people get confused. When, when I point out that it's used as law, I'm not always saying it's bad. I'm saying we have to realize what we're getting. Because ultimately, what, what will law do? When we hear law messages, what do they typically do if we're honest with them? What do they do to us? Convict? What else? There's, a, there's a, some negative thing. Conviction is it? Would everyone agree that conviction is good? 
What's the negative thing? Okay, can lead to guilt. That can actually be positive, all right? It can lead to depression and discouragement because typically, what do we know about law? We never can accomplish it the way it's supposed to. Because what is required to be obedient to law? What are the things that are required? It must be personal obedience, perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual. We fall short of that every single time. All right? So, and what else can it lead to? And this is the very, very, the very negative one. Law can lead to conviction, which is good, can lead to guilt, which can be good if it, if it leads us to Christ. Um, but the discouragement, depression, frustration, that's where it becomes negative. But the most dangerous is it leads to simply an external behavioral modification where we clean up the outside of the tomb, we clean up the outside of the cup to, make a, to present that we are good or we're doing it, when in reality, there's still all kinds of corruption inside. Christianity cannot be about behavioral modification. It's supposed to be about a change internally. Does that make sense? Right, so just keep that in mind. All right. In other words, you can fake. In other words, here's what can happen. I can preach this. Look at Paul's desire for Israel. Do you have that same kind of desire? And in fact, he goes on to say, "For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God." All right. Well, he continues to go on, but he talks here about his desire for them. Okay, now, I want to just make sure we see how this works. If I preach it as law, I'm going to come along and say, when, when we talk about Paul's desire to see Israel saved, what are some other things we can say about his desire? Didn't he wish that he himself could be what? Accursed for them. Right? Remember we've talked about that? So, do you, are you willing, do you have so much desire to see someone saved that you're willing to be accursed or go to hell for them? Do you truly have that desire? Most people are going to say what? No, and going to be convicted. All right? So now you're convicted. So then you, how do you fix it? How do you fix it? Some people say, well, you need to meditate on hell, then you'll have a greater desire. Whatever the case may be, they'll give you three or four steps. But here's what typically happens. It leads to us giving the impression externally that we're that upset and that concerned for people when internally, what's the reality? We haven't really changed. So we can, because everyone knows, I mean, if you've been in church for any length of time, everyone at church or in Sunday school or in a small group, everyone says the right words, right? We say the right, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, I feel so bad for them. Everyone knows all the right words to say. The problem is, so many times, that doesn't reflect what's really going on inside because we know to dress it up. So we have to be careful that law does not just lead to us cleaning up the outside. So we pretend that we really care about people when in reality we don't. All right? So there, there's verse 1. Verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. If you were to put that in a category, where would you put that? Where would you put verse 2? If you had to make a choice? Law, why? So he's talking about what they do and what they don't do, right? They have a zeal, but what? Not according to knowledge. So is that a good zeal or a bad zeal? It's bad. 
Right? So then, how would the preacher preach that? In what ways do you have a zeal, but not according to knowledge? And then it would be talking about making sure that you have the right knowledge to match your zeal. Okay? It would be preached in a very law-based way. We all know that. You've all heard the sermons on it, okay? Verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, if I don't lose my voice here, <coughs> for, they are, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What, what would we do with verse 3? Law, because once again, it's telling, them, telling us what? What they're doing wrong. What they are doing wrong. Now, there's a lot we could say here, but let's just ask ourselves this. We'll go a little bit further here. What do you think it means that they went about establishing their own righteousness and not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God? What do you think that means? They focused on what kind of righteousness? Their self-righteousness, their own righteousness. And what does it mean to submit to the righteousness of God? What do you think? Okay. I think that's how many will approach this. I think Paul's trying to establish there's two, there's two kinds of righteousness. What are the two kinds of righteousness? Okay. Let's call it a self-righteousness, a practical righteousness, the, righteous, the righteousness of the things we do or don't do. Correct? What's the other kind of righteousness? God's righteousness. Okay. Describe it. Oh, there we go. An imputed righteousness. Okay? Many people run around establishing their own righteousness, meaning the things they do. I try to do this. I don't do this. I try to do this. I don't do this. I try to do this. I don't do this. I try harder. I do this. I don't. I do this. That is a personal righteousness. Okay? What's the problem with the personal righteousness? What's the problem with personal righteousness? that no matter how right it is, it's still wrong in the following ways. Number one, even our good works are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. Number two, what, are the stand, what is the standard to judge every work that you ever do? It has to be personal, perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual. Are any of the works you've ever done, do they meet that requirement? No. Guess what? If you rely on that righteousness, what conclusion would you always come to? That you're lost. So, you have to submit yourself to whose righteousness? God's righteousness. And that means not right, not, not, not now you try to do different things. It means you're submitting to the imputed righteousness. What is the problem, especially, he's referring here to, for they, for they being ignorant. Who is the they there in verse 3? Who is the they in verse 3? Israel, right? Because Israel's mentioned where? In verse 1. Who's Paul's zeal for? 
Right? So, who has a zeal, but not according to knowledge? Israel. Okay, who's running around trying to establish their own righteousness? Israel. How are they trying to establish their own righteousness? Oh, okay, okay, this is very important. By trying to keep which law? Trying to keep God's law. They're trying to keep God's law, but by trying to keep God's law, they're really establishing their own righteousness because they're trying to do good things. And trying to do good things, where does that always lead them? Condemnation. The more we try to do good things, we're going to end up condemned because it's never good enough. So what do we need? Okay. Well, if we use Luther's term, what do we need? What did Luther refer to it as? It starts with an A. An alien righteousness. A foreign righteousness. Something that has nothing to do with what we do. And that's called an imputed righteousness. And how do we get the imputed righteousness? By faith. Let's add the next word since we're not Catholic. Alone, all right? Alone, 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 alone. We've got to get the alone part, all right? Faith alone. So therefore, I am declared righteous not because of what I do, but what Christ has done. All right? So, how do we understand verse 3? It's, it's law because it's saying that by doing good things, you're, they're in trouble, right? They're ignorant of God's righteousness. We are ignorant of God's righteousness when we look to our own righteousness and we're not submitting to God's righteousness when we point to our own righteousness as somehow proof of anything. Verse 4, for Christ is what? The end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What is verse 4? Verse 4 is classic gospel. Verse 4 is classic gospel. Why is verse 4 classic? If you need a gospel verse, this is the one to look at so you can judge all other verses. Why is this a gospel verse? It's everything that Christ has done for me. In Christ, what, it, when I'm in Christ, what does the law no longer do for me? According to that verse. Well, according to the verse... It's no longer a source of righteousness. In other words, I don't look to the law for my righteousness. Look, here's the thing. Your righteousness is either found in Christ or it's found in keeping the rules. But no matter how well you keep the rules, you're always going to end up condemned. In Christ, the law is, it's the end of the law for righteousness. Because my righteousness is now not determined by what I do. It's determined by what Christ did. This is pure God. Verse 4, if you need a gospel verse, like, okay, if I, if I'm, when I'm looking for, for gospel verses, this is a great example. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse 5, for Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Now, what, what's verse 5? Law, absolute law. What did Moses say? He said, here's the righteousness that comes by doing what? Keeping the law. And what does it say about this law? There's a righteousness, verse 5, of the law, 
and the one who does these things will live by them. Your whole life will have to be committed to them. Your whole life will have to be dedicated to them. And remember Israel, when they first heard the law, what their uh, reaction was? We're going to keep this. We're going to do it. How long did that last? Not long. Next thing you know, they were taking off their clothes and running around a golden calf. Right? I mean, next thing you know, they were doing, they were complaining, grumbling, this. I mean, they were constantly doing something wrong, yes? They were constantly uh, doing something wrong. And, and what, the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, every person almost mentioned in the Old Testament, what do we see them doing? Breaking the law. They don't live by it. They violate it. And they violate it in what ways? Thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed. By what we do, and by what we leave undone. All right? I'm borrowing from uh, the general confession that would be used in uh, any liturgical church when everyone gives a, a confession of their sins during the worship service. We say, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. We, that is the reality of our lives. So if, we, so if we look to the righteousness of keeping the law, where are we going to find ourselves? Condemned. So what do we have to look to? A righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith, not by what we do. All right, but verse 5 is clearly law. What's verse 6? But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, down from above. All right, so this righteousness that is of faith doesn't involve what? Us trying to do something, Correct? Or who shall descend into the deep that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh, the even in thy mouth and thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. In other words, this is very gospel-oriented because what is it saying? The righteousness that comes of faith does not require us to do what? We don't have to do anything. We don't have to go find it. We don't have to try. We don't have to do, go through this step or this step. It is by faith. And then verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, verse 9 is kind of a trick one. This is very important. Okay? Depending on one's theological background, they may argue that verse 9 is actually law and not gospel. How could someone say verse 9 is law? Ah, you have to do something. And what do you have to do? Confess and believe. So now, what's the question? Is this confession and belief something we do or something God does for us? If it's something we do, then salvation is according to works. Which would, which would create some major problems, right? So, so what's the question? Is faith something we do on our own, or is faith something given to us by God? This is a massive theological divide within the evangelical world. Not, well, the majority of the evangelical world believes faith is what? Most of the evangelical world believes faith is what? 
something we do. Now, they'll claim it's not a work. They'll claim it's not a work all day long, but they believe faith is something you can do. I come to you and I preach the word and we have a back and forth and I got to debate the right way, answer the right questions the right way, and ultimately, you have to exercise your will and believe, and they would say you have the ability to do so, you can do so, and you're responsible to do so. That would make it something you do. Okay? That makes it a work. And every definition, it makes it a work. But if we believe faith, what's the other way of believing about faith? Faith is what? Go to uh, Ephesians 2. Yeah, okay, very good. We'll just look at the verse because sometimes when I point this out, people online are like, wait, I've never heard this. Go to Ephesians 2. I believe it starts in verse 8. Yeah, for, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, is the gift of God. What is the gift of God in Ephesians 2.8? The grace and the faith. Everybody see that? Ephesians 2.8, everyone look at it, make sure you see that. The gift is the faith and the grace. I think it refers to both. I think that can be argued. And I think that that, I don't think there's anything wrong from a grammatical standpoint that would, that would say that that's incorrect. Would you agree, Sarah, or disagree? That there, I think that that's an accurate way of reading it. I, I believe that that's correct. So if that is true, then how do we see this verse? It would be gospel. Because yes, are we called to confess and believe? Yes. But guess what? In the gospel, God provides both. Now, that raises a philosophical problem, though. Okay, now we have to be honest. That raises a major philosophical, not a theological problem. The theological problem is easy to resolve, right? It's not a work because God is the one who gives us the grace and the faith and that leads to the confession, right? What's the philosophical problem? The philosophical problem is if he does that for some, why doesn't he do it for all? And do we have a good answer? We don't have a good answer. I mean, we can say, we have an answer, it's called election, but it's not a good answer philosophically, because why would he not want all people to be saved? Because there's some scriptures that seem to indicate that he does. That's, that we, we will never resolve that problem. There's just, there's no way to resolve that problem. I wish I understood. But obviously, before, look, before God created the world, he knew that people were going to not be saved. So, where, where do I we say all the problems begin? Genesis 1.1. All right, verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And again, how does the heart of man believe? God has to grant him the faith. Verse 11, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. What is that? It's gospel, because who gives us the faith? God, and once we have the faith, how come, how, how come we will never be ashamed? Because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. That's gospel. Right? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is all gospel. Because why do we call on the name of the Lord? Because God gives us the faith. So you've got a, you got a major gospel section here, do you not? 
Right? What do we have in verse 14? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What do we have in verse 14? Are you sure? What's the emphasis in this verse? People can't believe unless they hear. Whose responsibility is it for them to hear? The preacher. That's us. So this becomes law, telling us that we, what we have to do. Something we have to do. We, we've got to do something. We've got to bring the message to them. Verse 15, And how shall they preach except they be sent? And as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, the word gospel is mentioned here, but what is the emphasis on 15? On those who go and preach, those who are doing something. Those who are doing something. Right? Someone's got to preach. When I preach or teach, I'm doing something, correct? Right? That, that's a, it, it, that's, that's a, a work. That's, that would be more a law-based verse. All right? How about verse 16? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Ooh, that, that's, that, nobody likes that phrase, right? Now remember when we were working on our 25 thesis, we came up with an idea that the gospel, this is very important, seems to have sometimes, the gospel has promises, yes, and the gospel seems to sometimes have demands. But the demands of the gospel are met what? By the gospel. Therefore, it's not a law. And that's really confusing. But here's like, they have not obeyed the gospel. Right? So it says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So the idea here is, it's kind of a law, right? But there's kind of a gospel element here. Yes? Here's the thing. Just remember. The gospel makes demands, but the gospel provides for those demands. The only problem is, it doesn't provide for what? Everyone. Okay? Does the gospel provide for everyone? Well, if it did, everyone would be saved. So it provides for whom? The elect. Right. And I, I mean, I, look, I wish, it was, I wish it wasn't that way in some way. Well, I don't know. On one hand, I say I wish it wasn't that way, but what would be the result if it wasn't that way? Nobody would be saved because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. So really, you know, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we could, we could spend forever trying to work through all of those problems. Verse 17, so then faith come, cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What do we do with this? What do you think? Is it more gospel or is it more law? Well, if the, if the emphasis here is on Hearing, uh, if the emphasis is on hearing the word of God, in other words, the point is, it's emphasizing that we have to share the word of God with people so they can hear it, then that makes it more law-based. Does that make sense? On the other hand, there's a gospel element, because how does faith come about? Not by what we do, but by the word of God. God uses, he gives us the faith through the proclamation of his word. So in that sense, there's a faith element to it. 
But I say, have they, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. So Paul here, again, making another emphasis that the gospel had gone to, to the whole world. That's important because a lot of people believe this is... I don't want to get back into our Matthew 24 discussion, but remember in Matthew 24, a lot of people say one of the signs that we're going to get close to the end times or that Jesus is about to come back is when the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world. And people will claim that that's never happened, but multiple times Paul claims that the gospel has gone where? Into the whole world. So we believe that that, that discussion about that in biblical prophecy is a reference to 70 A.D., the gospel had gone into the whole known world before 70 AD. Then the destruction of the temple occurred and that fulfilled that prophecy. So we, we talked about that in our study on Matthew 24. We don't have time to go back through all of that. But here's another example. I mean, what did he say? Have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the... Tell you that... that, that that, that has to be the, the fulfillment of that. Verse 19, But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are, no, that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. Right? What is verse 10? Or, I'm sorry, verse 19. Law of gospel. There's law here. What's getting ready to happen? What's going to happen to Israel? He's talking about Israel in verse 19. Remember, the whole chapter is about Israel. He's going to provoke them to jealousy. How are they going to be provoked to jealousy? To the Gentiles. He, 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 what does he refer to the, the nations that are going to be used to uh, provoke them? What does he say about them? They're no people. A foolish nation. That's us. Everyone. That's all of us. We're fools. Okay. We're the foolish nation. We're Gentiles. Right? Yes? And so, God is going to do it. So, I guess in some ways, could we make an argument some kind of a gospel is kind of involved here as well? On one hand, it's showing what Israel didn't do, but it's also showing what God is going to do. Right? God's going to do something. He's going to provoke them to jealousy. True? By using us. And then what happens in the next verse? But Isaiah is very, very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Making a reference uh, to an Old Testament passage. But the point is, who are these people who are going to find them who didn't seek him? Who are going to be these people who he manifest unto that did not ask? The Gentiles. That's all what God, that's pure gospel. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hand unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. God has continued to stretch out his hand to Israel, and they are, how does he describe them? Right. They are continue to disobey, which clearly we, we, and a little bit, you have a little bit of a gospel thing there, right? What's the gospel element? Stretch forth his hand. What is the law-based they disobeyed and would not listen. They would not listen. So, in this, in, in this section in Romans 10, this is very important, all right? This is, I mean, we're going to run out of time, but that's okay. This is very important. So, I want to make sure we understand this. In Romans 10, what is Israel's problem? 
And Romans 10, what is their problem? Go back to the very first part of the chapter. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. Israel's trying to establish their own righteousness and how they're trying to establish it. By living in accordance to the law of Moses. They're trying to establish their righteousness by the law of Moses, by law keeping. And what is the end result of that law keeping? Disobedient, disobedient, sin, and condemnation. Law will always lead to a disobedient, condemned people. I don't care how many, how many laws, you can memorize the Ten Commandments, you can post them on every street corner and every building, and, and Christians seem to think this is, that, that fixes all of the problems. All it will do, the Ten Commandments will simply do what? Reveal the sin in people. In fact, biblically and theologically, what, what is something else the law does? Not only does it reveal, it provokes, it brings forth sin. It actually motivates it. And we've talked about this before. You can, you can, you, you, children can be playing anywhere, like in the kitchen anywhere, and you're just, and you're, and all of a sudden you look over like, oh no, 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 no. They better not touch that. No, they've not even thought about it. And then the minute you say, don't touch that, someone in that group is going to do what? All of a sudden that's all they can think about. That's all they can, th- wait, I can't have that? Wait, that's what I can't have? There can be 900 toys on the floor. 900 toys. They should be the most contented kids in the history of mankind. They should be. But that one thing, that one thing, and if not more than one, they're going to end up doing what? And then you're like, why did I tell them not to? Why did I tell them not to? Same thing can happen with a teenager. They can be, you can give them a, they want to do something on a Friday night and you can give them a thousand options. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can go here, you can go here, you can go here, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. 9,000 options, but you can't go there. You can't do that. And they will be completely for the rest of that night either coming up with some plan to get there, to do it. Why? Because they were given a Law. Law just makes it, just, it just creates it. And it's just so weird that many Christians really believe if we'll just give everyone a copy of the Ten Commandments, we'll fix all the problems in society. Did it fix the... Look, Israel had the Ten Commandments. Did they not? They knew the Ten Commandments. What were they supposed to do with the Ten Commandments? They were supposed to have memorized... They were supposed to be in their mind, in their heart. They were supposed to be talked about. They were supposed to be taught. And how did it work out with Israel? Having the Ten Commandments. Well, in fact, let's, 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 let's make sure we, because I, I think sometimes Christians in America forget this. Look at what Israel had. Did they have the right law? Did they have the right leader? God was in charge of them, yes? He was present with them. God's presence and God's law led to what for the people? Disobedience. Can you wrap your mind around that fact? The presence of God and the law of God led to a nation who disobeyed perpetually. In fact, what happens to an entire generation of them? 
They die. So, so then think about what Israel had. They had law. They had the presence of God. And what else did they have? They had an absolute proof that God would judge you for disobedience. They had absolute proof God would judge you for disobedience. They had at, that God's presence was there and they had the law. And still what happened? Even after everyone died and they go into the promised land, almost immediately when they get into the promised land, what do they start doing? They start disobeying, right? Because God said to destroy certain people and what did they do? They didn't destroy them. And then what do they end up doing? Okay, they, well, then they start intermarrying when they're not supposed to. Then they start, I mean, they just start doing everything. I, what, and they turn to idolatry relatively quick, yes? Idolatry, idolatry, intermarry. Then they start making, uh, you know, basically treaties with other nations. They start doing everything wrong. And then, then, obviously, the northern kingdom goes into captivity from Assyria. Southern kingdom goes in captivity of Babylon. North, how many good kings did they have? None. Wickedness, 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 wickedness. Isn't it? I mean, can you even wrap your mind around it? Look, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me state this, because, because I, this is so relevant to the, the culture in which we live, especially in America, because of the way some Christians think in regards to our country and what needs to be fixed. There's many Americans who think that if we give every, every school a copy of the Ten Commandments, post the Ten Commandments everywhere, if we bring God back into America, let me tell you, you can give everyone the Ten Commandments, God himself could be ruling in the White House. He could, he could destroy a million people on live television. And guess what would, would be the end result of it? Disobedience and rebellion. That's hard to believe. But you know why I know that to be true? It already happened with which nation? We read just about it in Romans chapter 10. And it got so bad that God did what? Turn to the Gentiles. But guess what? What's the solution for Israel and what's the solution for the Gentiles? Not law, gospel. Salvation. Now, here's the thing. Is salvation going to make everyone more obedient? Well, we're still going to be disobedient, right? But what is it going to make us? Perfectly righteous in the sight of God. So because... I think, I think I, I, you, I, you, you may disagree, but I think if you look at the history of Christianity, I won't go back to, um, I, won't, I won't go back before America, but if we'll just start with Christianity in the history of the United States of America, Christianity in the United States of America has always taken the characteristics of moralism and just that Christianity is to make everyone better and to make the country better. But has it always worked? No. It didn't work for Israel. No. Because what, what's, the, what's the ultimate problem? The ultimate problem is not that we need more external law. The problem isn't that we need the external presence of God. The problem is that we have a sinful nature. And guess what is not removed as long as human beings are on this earth? The sinful nature. So the problem will always what? Persist. I know that goes against everything thinking in our mind, but I, I think that this is, this is one of the key elements about a proper distinction between law and gospel. So many Christians talk 
law, 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 law. Let me read an email that I got this morning. I, 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 I was just shocked by it. I mean, I guess I wasn't shocked by it because I should expect this kind of stuff. Let me see if I can find it here. All right. There is a social media platform called Gab. It's one of the like conservative, you know, uh, free speech uh, social media platforms. Very much into what would be known as Christian nationalism. And I've kept up with it, and I sign up because I'm always keeping up with what's going on in the culture, especially anything that's clo- that's connected to uh, Christianity. So they send us this thing saying a special election message from the, like the CEO and founder of Gab, all right? He sends this out today, and he says this. If you are a Christian, the choice is clear. Vote Republican. If you call yourself a Christian and are voting Democrat, you need to be under church discipline. I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? Now, I think, and we, we don't have time to do this, but if you don't believe me, you can go home today. You start in Genesis and you go to Revelation and you find me one verse that tells me you have to vote or called to vote or should vote. There's nothing telling you that. So what did he just create? A law. All right? There's nothing in Scripture that would say that a person should be brought up under church discipline in regards to their vote. There's nothing in Scripture that would come close to indicating that. I mean, if you can be church disciplined for your vote, I mean, I guess you could basically be church disciplined for literally breathing at that point, right? Okay, because for every for every argument you give for voting for one party, I could give you a counter argument why voting for that party would be just as wrong. Because guess what I can find in both parties? Cor- well, corruption, but sin, right? I can find policies that are messed up, that are not necessarily built. So, look, some po- policies that conservatives love just don't meet the requirements for the, from a biblical perspective. They may sound good if you are from Texas or from the South and you think a certain way, but they may not be in line with Scripture. And there's some policies that liberals have that may be in more line with Scripture, but then there's some policies that liberals have that are in no way in line with Scripture. Right? So this, this turns into a mess. But this, but what is, what does that, that person want? He almost wants a law to be established. And, and if you, if you look at everything he has written, they've written a book. Uh, Gab's just published a book on Christian nationalism. They want a Christian nationalism. They want to establish that Christianity becomes the basis for the law in the United States of America. Well, now you're going to just start punishing and killing people for basically going against scripture, which is frightening. Because what would you do if the Muslims wanted to establish Sharia law as the basis? Everybody, Christians would get upset. Well, if you want your religion to be in charge, well, then every other religion wants their religion to be in charge. But I will tell you, even if we establish all of those laws, what's going to happen? Sin and disobedience. Because what will those laws not do? I mean, just think about it. How many laws are on the books in America? Now, am I saying don't have law in America? I'm not saying that. People will misconstrue what I'm saying, right? Uh, why do we have law? Well, what's the purpose of law in, in any government or any state or country? What's the purpose of law? We try to hope that it will restrain behavior, right? We hope, right? 
But ultimately, it's the basis in which someone who breaks the law can be punished. Right? We don't know if it will necessarily restrain it. Crime rates go up and down all the time. Sometimes within a country, crime rates go up. Sometimes they go down. Sometimes there's no direct correlation to law. There could be a million reasons why. We know the ultimate reason is a sinful nature. Right? So yes, I got no problem with society putting law in a place But what do we know from a theological perspective? It won't stop it. It won't stop it. What's the the first law ever recorded in Scripture? What's the first law ever recorded in Scripture? Who can find it first? It's in Genesis. The first law ever ever recorded in Scripture. Who can find it first? It's in Genesis. Who can find it first? In Genesis. The first law. Yeah, it's it's about the tree. Where is it? Is it chapter 2? See, who can find it? We know it's not chapter 3, because chapter 3, everything's already gone wrong. So it's either in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Of chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17? All right. What does it say? Okay, now please, you can have all these trees, but you can't have that one. There's the law. And immediately, not long after it, how many verses later, where do we find Eve? How many verses later? That's 15 and 16. Or is it chapter 3 where we find her at the tree? Or or 3, she's already fallen? No. That's chapter 3, right? Okay, but where where do we find her before that? She's standing there looking at the tree, right? What, what, chapter 3, verse 1 or 2? But she's standing there looking at the tree, right? Seems to be the implication. They're having a conversation about it, right? Okay. So, in other words, it doesn't take long. He gives the command in 2.16, and before you know it, Eve seems to be standing there looking at what? Looking at the tree. And what does she say about the tree? We can't eat it, we can't touch it. But then at some point, she sees that it's good for what? Satan says something about the the fruit of it. He's going to give knowledge. Something else is said there. Okay. We'll, We'll just work our way through it really quick. All right. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You will not die, for God doth know that in the day that you eat, therefore, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman, that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired. Sooner or later, even though the law says you can't have it, 
she finds herself looking at it saying, this is good. This is what I want. Does she care any more about all the other trees? Does she care any more about all the other fruit? She sees that. That's what law always drives you to. So here's the very first law that's ever given in Scripture. Was it successful law or, a, or an unsuccessful law? Unsuccessful. And that is with two people who did not have what? A sin nature. That is insane to me. So I would say go through the entire Bible, okay, Right. And, I, and this is, this, I, it would be funny to do this. It would take a lot of work. So if some listener wants to do this, I would love to see your finished project. Pro, you have to make a chart. I want on one side every law. Go through the Bible and list every law. Every law. And just make sure you have the scripture reference. Every commandment. Right? There's going to be a lot. Hundreds and hundreds. Probably maybe four, five hundred, maybe even six hundred. There's a lot. I mean, you got, I mean, there's scripture after scripture after scripture says, do this, don't do this, do this. The God, God commanded this. God commanded this. Take all of them. And then on this side, keep a running tally, successful or unsuccessful. If there's six hundred laws, I think that law was unsuccessful six hundred times. Because we always, do. you have to ask yourself that question, Why? So law tries to restrain. Law gives the ability to punish because you broke the law, but the law never leads to the obedience. That's why we have to have a proper distinction between law and gospel because many Christians think the, 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 the secret to success is law. But the Bible would demonstrate that law is not the key to success because it fails every single time. So when you hear Christians talk, you'll hear them say things about law and it's frightening because they think it can be successful even though they have a Bible which proves that it's never successful. Never successful. Now, it's successful in this. It is successful in what it's intended to do. And what is law intended to do? Reveal sin, convict, and what else? It should lead us to the gospel. It should lead us to the gospel. But it's successful in the convicting and the revealing. It shows us. And I guess you could say it's also successful in this, being the standard and by which people will be judged. It is the standard in which people will be judged. And so in that sense, every law is always successful in this. That's the standard. I'm gonna, you're going to be punished, and that's why you're being punished, because you broke that law. The law is always successful as the standard in which someone will be punished. But it's not successful, because if you think about it, with all the laws, every, the world should be the greatest place ever, that has ever existed, right? There should be no crime, there should be no problems, Everything, everybody should get along, everyone should say the right words, everyone should do the right thing, there should never be racism, there should never be bigotry, there should never be crime. It, the world would be a perfect place. And has it ever been a perfect place? But has it had plenty of laws? Yes. And you've been a Christian for a long time. Do you have plenty of laws? A book full of them. And what do you find yourself doing constantly with them? Disobeying them. So you see why we have to understand that if the minute you mess this up, then this is what the Christians do. They look at the world and they want to grab law and they want to take the law to the world. Now, 
we take the law to the world simply to show them their sin, and then we give them the gospel. But the law cannot become the basis in fixing everything because it never has worked. All right, we'll have to stop there. All right, we didn't get to, well, we got through all of Romans 10, but um, I wanted to get back into the thesis, but that, that's, this was an important conversation. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Forgive us for our misuse of the law and for looking to the law as the solution when we should realize that it's only in your son and his finished work is there any hope, is there any salvation, and only in him does anything make sense. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...